Welcome to Why Am I Just Finding This Out? I'm your host, Kristen Stovern, women's health clinician for over 20 years, practicing in all areas of women's health with a passion to educate, empower, and leave a legacy of better health for women. Today's guest is Dr. Lauren Michelisi, a professor at Brown University School of Public Health. She is an analytical psychologist that has ongoing research and advocacy. Her research focuses on the parent-child unit with a particular focus on the perinatal and adolescent periods of child development. Her immense amount of research is really helping support the cause to improving perinatal support and family support with substance use within that time period of life. And she is trying to advocate through stakeholders such as legislatures, policymakers, and community resources that are supporting our family units to try to support women as they are trying to get beyond their alcohol or addiction problems. This conversation is one just to get the information out there and enlighten others. It's meant for informational purposes only and not intended to be taken as the only opinion that's possible, but more for us to have an open and honest conversation. I'm excited about today's podcast and excited to get to talk with Lauren today. Hello, welcome to another episode of Why Am I Just Finding This Out? Today, we have Lauren Michelisi. She is a Brown University professor that's done a phenomenal amount of research and is a true advocate for maternal health in a way that I think we all need to be enlightened to hear. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks, Kristen, for having me. Lauren, why don't you tell me your role, who you are, so that we can kind of get an idea of what the driving force is behind all of your extensive research and advocacy. So I'm a researcher, a developmental scientist at Brown University School of Public Health, and I study some of the many factors that influence how children develop. So I think like many of us do quite intuitively, I've formalized this into a career. I've always been fascinated by trying to understand what makes children behave and think differently from one another. So if you take a group of children and you put them in some relatively standardized environment, there's incredible variability in how they'll respond to that environment, right? Like you take your kid to the children's museum and there are loads of other children there. Some children cling to their parents' legs the whole time. Some children take off down the hall immediately. So in my work, I try to understand what the factors are that influences those types of differences that we see in how children behave. Well, I can say that for many of us, and certainly me with my three children who are very, very different, that would be very intriguing to know, you know, because those of us that have been raising children and depending on where you are in that, they can respond and behave so differently to the exact same stimuli or environment. And they also can have such uniquely different personalities I can just say for myself, I have three boys, 22, 19, and 13, and they are all very different personalities. They're definitely brothers. You can tell they're brothers, but I could get onto one and he might cry. One might get angry and the other be completely silent. And some love to be in social environments and others want to just stay home. So it's interesting that you have such a desire to understand that population because can't we all relate to that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Even kids within the same family, like you're describing, they mm -hmm. share half of their genes, presumably. So, yeah, like we look at 
things like genetic influences, but also mm -hmm. we look at the environment, environmental influences like peers, parents, teachers, neighborhoods. These are all the environmental influences that I study when I'm trying to understand what makes kids different from one another. And while those are all environmental influences that are occur later in life after birth, when I was in grad school, I learned about this theory called prenatal programming, which is the idea that the environment that an individual experiences during field development can play a really seminal role in determining how their health unfolds across the lifetime. So how a pregnant person feels, what music they listen to, the substances that they use, all of these behaviors can influence the child's development. And that's what got me here. That's why we're talking today, because I became fascinated by by this idea that these very early exposures can have real lifelong consequences, some positive and some less positive. There is an interesting TED Talk that I'm sure you've seen, watched or heard that talks about childhood trauma mm -hmm. and how that affects us as adults and shapes us into who we are, how we react to our environments, and also the linkage even to substance abuse or substance use, whether that was involved in your childhood, but or it became a way for you to emotionally cope mm -hmm. as an adult. I find this to be a topic that it's nice to know that we're talking about it rather than just having to keep it under the rug, so to speak, because for myself and I imagine you when we were growing up, you didn't talk about any of this and you were really not allowed to talk about people's emotional states or how they reacted to things or what their childhoods were like. And fortunately, now I think we're opening up the conversation to say it's okay to recognize that these imperfections, these incidences, these traumas occurred as a child and they have gotten to where you are. Now it's figuring out what we do about it and how we can help heal those wounds and grow out of that and try to establish better coping skills. Is that how you got led down this path because of your own personal life, childhood, or what was your, what drew you to this? I think it's more just my experiences watching other people. I've always mm. been a watcher. I'm a psychologist, yeah. right? That's what, I do. <laughs> so what I do in my pastime and what I do in my work. And I was fascinated by how in grad school, I did work with twins. I worked on a twin study. Some of those were identical twins who mm -hmm. share 100% of their genetic makeup. And some of those are fraternal twins who share about 50% of their gen genetic makeup. And I saw that you can take these identical twins and put them in a very standardized environment. What we did in grad school was we had, it's called the lab tab, the laboratory temperament assessment battery. And one of the tasks is a ball pit. And you take the kid and you put them in a ball pit and then you watch them and you code all types of things. You look for how vigorously they play, how active are they or how sedentary mm -hmm. are they? And it's an assessment of temperament. And we found that identical twins who share 100% of their genes, when you put them in that ball pit, there's still variability in how they respond. So that tells us that it's not just genes dictating how we behave. That's a one very you know, standardized example. But if you mm -hmm. take any behavior, the environment exerts for some behaviors more or less influence, but the environment's incredibly important in shaping behaviors. So understanding what are the environments that help children thrive and how right. can we foster those? And what are the environments that 
hinder their growth and set them on a trajectory less healthy? How can we minimize those? How can we bolster folks so that they aren't experiencing those environments? So back to why you are where you are now, the passion projects and the research that you're doing and the involvement in trying to make a dent in the punitive policies around perinatal substance abuse and that. Let me know how that changed, you know, shifted your career trajectory and research and why you are there. So I mentioned that when I was thinking about the factors that influence the way that children develop, I worked backward, starting at peers and parents and then thinking back and back to the prenatal environment. And as I started to do more work in the prenatal substance use space, I learned that there are policies that are in place that are well-intended to sort of regulate substance use and to protect the developing child and to some degree, the pregnant person or largely the developing child. And I was really surprised as I got more and more into this space that some of the policies that are in place that are intended to support folks and to protect children may actually be causing harm themselves, yet they remain in place. Can you give me an example of that? So I really would like people to understand what we mean. The punitive policies that actually, so if you are a pregnant woman or intending to be, or you have been, policies that are part of Department of Family Services and different state legislation and the actions of each county and each state across the country, they vary. And so what we're talking about is there's harmful policies or can be harmful policies. The intent is to try to protect the newborn child and to protect the families and to somehow protect in a backwards way the actual pregnant person. These policies can many times be harmful, not helpful. If you can kind of explain that and what you mean by that in terms of the punitive policies, I think that would help listeners because unless you're on the ground floor of this, for me, I'm on labor and delivery and seeing what's occurring and then going to see these women after they have their babies and being sent home and social work coming to see them and Department of Family Services seeing them from whatever county they reside and understanding what the consequences are for many families based on the judgment of that family services or county or state and the policies that are in place. Can you kind of explain that and why it's such an issue that we need to really work towards making equitable? Yeah, so punitive policies, you know, by nature of that descriptor, they inflict punishment on someone who is suspected or confirmed as using substances prenatally. So examples of punitive policies are criminalization of prenatal substance use, and then the definition of prenatal substance exposure as child maltreatment in child welfare statutes. And going even further than that, defining prenatal substance exposure as grounds or using it as grounds for termination of parental rights. Wow, that was a big statement. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. There are a lot of stakeholders in this conversation. You have sort of this intricate and vague and confounding web of these federal laws, state laws, government agency guidelines, healthcare institution policies that all govern the response to substance use in pregnancy. So as you can imagine, there's 
great deal of variation in how these policies are actually implemented and even how these policies are interpreted by people like healthcare providers who are on the ground and policymakers. So this leads us down the path of you have a woman who tests positive for, let's just for the sake of conversation, marijuana. And Mm -hmm. the current policies are meant to try to protect that, again, mom and help her get access to services and then protect the children. But the interpretation of how threatening that particular drug is, is not same the same across the board in all counties and all states. It's very, it's variable. So you could have one state that considers marijuana, no big deal. And in that mm-hmm. state, it's legal, whether recreational or medicinal. And then in other states, it's completely not allowed. And they're pulling children from homes over it, but not offering services that are needed for women who then need to get treatment for a drug abuse problem, right? That's kind of what we're talking about in that regard. And that's so then you really get punished for testing positive for a, a drug that may or may not really be a threat to the family or to the environment. And the judgment of whether it's an issue or not is based on person that's in front of them and the county they're in, their state that they're in. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. So the federal government developed what's called CAPTA, which is the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. And through this act, there's federal funding allocated to states that support efforts that seek to assess, evaluate, prevent, and treat cases of substantiated child abuse and neglect. CAPTA amended or first addressed prenatal substance use back in 2003. And it's been amended a few times since. But ultimately, this federal legislation allows states to determine sort of what the primary referral source is, if you're calling CPS, how the hospital is, or if and how the hospital is handling it, and determine the extent to which intervention should be taken. So the federal government passes down this funding, but there's ambiguity in in who's implementing it and how it's being implemented, which is, it causes confusion for policymakers, but also for providers and for individuals who may be trying to understand what the repercussions of their substance use are. I think for myself as a healthcare provider and have been doing it for over two decades What's challenging in all of this is realizing everyone has a story. Everyone has a different background. And it does seem that those in rural areas or that are more underserved or certain racial backgrounds, they are an inequitable process. So they are less likely to have resources available to them to get whatever is recommended by Department of Family Services. They're less likely to have access, transportation, ability to follow through with whatever ABC that that particular social service guideline has given them. And it just widens that the racial disparities. It widens the gap of those children that are already in a home of disparities, the likelihood of having a, a positive outcome and keeping that family unit together if possible and truly getting out of that crutch of needing substances for whatever use that they've become. Is that, that's just a huge battle. Right. Yes, it, it is a huge battle. And you noted just then is that there are serious equity implications of these policies, um, of punitive policies, I should say. There are supportive policies that are out there that show some 
marginal beneficial effect. But these punitive policies are widening these racial disparities that are already out there in the universe. Universal screening for substance use during pregnancy is not universal. We see that Black as well as Indigenous pregnant persons are more likely to be screened for illicit substance use in prenatal care. There's also racial disparities in reporting rates of newborns who are tested positive for prenatal substance exposure to CPS. So Black newborns are significantly more likely to be reported to Child Protective Services, CPS, than white or Hispanic newborns. They're also less likely to be reunified with their parents after mm -hmm. this separation has happened. And that's so sad because that just goes back to, of course, we have a foster care system issue and so many children that are displaced and then not reunited or the continuum of how that can just really break down a family unit and the likelihood of them being healthy and well and living long, happy lives. And it's a cascade effect. With all of this, interestingly, there has been some articles that have come out within the last year because there are people just stomping on the ground since the Dobbs decision last summer, which is related to the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. And I'm talking about just the health disparities across this country and what we can do because we're in a maternal health crisis. So we have more moms that are losing their life or having permanent issues because of outcomes that aren't optimal after having a baby or within pregnancy. And then infant mortality and morbidity, that's a whole nother topic that has continued to be a crisis in our country. This does play into that because we're seeing these high numbers of mental health issues be contributing to why we're having more moms die within that first year after having a baby. And we're having more disruptions in families due to maybe it's domestic violence, maybe it's drug use, unstable homes, not having a stable job. It just goes on and on. With this recent push, which I'm seeing articles about, and you've shared a couple articles about those that are really talking about the mandatory reporting with positive drug tests for newborns and for pregnant moms and when they deliver and, and who's involved, the retribution of it, the unfairness of who gets punitive decisions versus supportive decisions, whether it's inpatient care, outpatient therapy, whatnot. What are your thoughts on that and what we can do to make this better, to change this trajectory, to support our moms and our babies, to give them all a much more likely pathway to health? Yeah, it's a complex question and a complex answer, Kristen, that I, I don't have the whole answer. I wish I did. But what I know is that while these laws are well-intentioned, the goal is to protect the developing child and the pregnant person, likely in that order. We have to step back and look at, do these laws help? Okay. Are they achieving their intended objective? And are they? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this this the very short answer, Kristen, is that the research okay. suggests that they're not. Okay. So if we look at punitive policies on health-seeking behavior mm -hmm. of the pregnant person, so the degree to which they seek care and then stay engaged with care, okay. engaging in prenatal care early and often results in the best outcomes for the pregnant person and the developing child. What research has shown is that pregnant persons who live in states with punitive policies 
are less likely to receive adequate prenatal care, and they're less likely to go to a postpartum visit within six weeks after delivery. So we're not seeing engagement in healthcare, which is a protective therapeutic behavior. In fact, we're seeing a deterrence away from health-seeking behaviors during and after pregnancy due to fear of of negative repercussions. So generally, those that may have been involved in perinatal substance abuse or had a history of it, they're fearful of getting care because they're afraid they'll get in trouble. And so they're just not getting care. That's what the research is saying. Yeah. So one other sort of project that I do some work on is where do these people go for information? Where do they go? They go to the internet and they go to family and friends, but we have done some research looking at how people who fear negative, presumably fear negative repercussions of seeking healthcare during pregnancy when they're using substances, where do they go? They go to discussion forums, they go to Reddit, (laughs) they go to what to expect, and they go to the discussion boards there. And and we've analyzed some of the content of these discussion boards to see what communication looks like and what questions people are asking on these boards. And one of the major themes that we found is that people are afraid to disclose their use. So they're coming to these boards and they're asking questions about, is cannabis healthy? to use during pregnancy. I don't know. It's natural. My provider, if I do have a provider, we don't really talk about it. So what do you think community? Or on the other hand, people are saying, I have to deliver in a hospital. I know I'm going to be tested and I'm going to test positive. What do I do about it? Is there a way to get around it? What's going to happen if I do test positive? So not only is there a lack of engagement. Yeah. Not only is there a lack of engagement in prenatal care, but then there's this sort of secondary snowball effect where if people are turning to the internet to have these conversations, it can become a bit of an echo chamber about risks, benefits, how to engage in healthcare or not engage in healthcare, what to do when you get to the hospital. Well, out of curiosity, which putting you on the spot on this. Yeah. When you were looking at this research and trying to just see where people were getting their information, how accurate were the responses from the communities? There was misinformation. Okay. That's not to say that it was only misinformation, but we did identify several instances of misinformation. Do you have an example? I think that would be kind of cool to understand. I so do. I would love some examples because I think that for those of us that really want to make a difference here and really want to improve the health for women everywhere and for children and families and improve the legacy of better health here to understand where that misinformation is. And so that we can try to support, not negate the questions, whether we agree with them or not, or whether we would do the same thing or not. I would love to know examples of what information they were given. Yeah. So, so what we saw is that these are threads, right? So someone posts a question. I'm speaking specifically about one that I will not mention by name, but Someone made a comment around breastfeeding and asking, is breastfeeding safe when I'm using cannabis? And the current recommendation is not to breastfeed when using cannabis. And so someone posed that question and then, you know, you have a flurry of responses. The the vast majority of responses were encouraging of breastfeeding. There are a few that maybe raise some concerns or say that their provider said it wasn't healthy, but 
For example, one person said something to the effect of cannabis doesn't pass through breast milk to the baby, so you should be good. Or another person said something to the effect of cannabinoids are the constituents are naturally occurring in breast milk. So actually you're helping your child if you're using cannabis during or during breastfeeding. And I will say, I will say the research on the effects of cannabis use in pregnancy and during breastfeeding is a field that is actively trying to fill the gaps that exist in the research space. So we need to learn a lot more about what exactly happens with cannabis use in pregnancy. But these folks are picking up on some sort of ambiguity that they're getting from healthcare providers. If they do disclose their use to their providers, their providers may or may not be able to give a direct answer. They may or may not be feel educated or able to advise. And folks are going elsewhere for information. So putting you on the spot again, yeah. what are your thoughts about drug testing and pregnancy? And how is that done in, in a fair and equitable way without having a prejudgment there? And on that same topic, how can women disclose of use when they may not feel like it's a problem or they don't plan to change it or they don't want to be penalized, but still want to share that so that they're being transparent? So I've given you two heavy questions, but just out of curiosity, wondering, you know, what your take is. Again, this is coming from a psychologist who's done heavy research related to the use of substances in the pregnant time period and how it affects families and children. And her take is going to be one based on research of behaviors and analyzing outcomes and looking at what, if you do this, what will then be most likely to happen? So I feel like you have a really valid opinion on this. Oh, thanks, Kristen. You know, my perspective is that I mean, in general, not just specific to pregnancy, is that there's a lot of stigma around substance use, around mental health more generally, but absolutely around substance use and even more so about substance use in pregnancy. So in terms of what providers can do is to create a non-stigmatizing environment in which people feel comfortable disclosing. That is to say, there are still the mandated reporting requirements. So that has to look a little bit different if we're going to create this safe space. And I would argue that it should look a little bit different. This is not to say that I don't think there's utility in screening for substance use in pregnancy. I do think there's utility for screening for substance use in pregnancy, but the policies that are in place around that screening need to be more supportive than punitive prioritize treatment to substance use disorder treatment programs for people who are pregnant. Educate, you know, make it an open dialogue. You mentioned earlier in this conversation about having these different conversations around trauma than we ever did. We need Mm -hmm. to be having more open and different conversations about substance use in pregnancy too. You're not going to change. You asked, what do we do if someone discloses substance use and they have no plans to change it? Education we can educate folks on what is the risk benefit ratio here? What do we know from research? What do we not know from research? And they can make an informed decision themselves. There may be repercussions to that, but we can't change folks' behavior. They need to change their behavior if if they want to. So the, the best we can do is to create an environment where disclosure is safe, not necessarily result in CPS involvement, and delayed reunification, 
but rather support these folks, lift them up, give them the access to and the resources that they need. So on that topic, do you feel like there's enough resources? No, I don't. Right. So much of my work actually revolves around understanding if, and if so, what the effects of prenatal substances are on the developing child. And from the get-go, I will just say that we need more work in that space. We need to better understand the effects of substance use during pregnancy on the developing child, but also on the pregnant person who also matters. It is not part of the conversation as much as I would like for them to be. We need more information, Kristen. We need to do more research on the effects of substance use during pregnancy. We need to inform people at all stakeholders. Policymakers need more information. Healthcare providers need more information. And pregnant people who are making decisions about their health need more information, accurate and non-stigmatizing information. So some of the work that I hope to do moving forward is to develop resources, a pamphlet or a decision tree or some easy to access and low burden informational tool for healthcare providers who are trying to inform and educate their patients and then to pivot and perhaps connect them to care if it's indicated. That would be so phenomenal. If we had basically like an algorithm of you have this patient who presents, this is what's going on. Here's what you can do. Here are the resources. This is how you do it. And it's accessible and it's easy and it's affordable and it's doable. How amazing would that be? Yeah, right. And also, what are the policies in the state or county that you're practicing in? There's yeah. been some research to indicate that provide some providers feel that they're not well enough educated on the consequences of reporting of substance use during pregnancy, some substances more or less than others. So they skew toward more punitive reactions because they're not so sure. This is not to say that's true for everybody, but if there's ambiguity in what the negative outcomes may be, and you're skewing more punitive in your response, maybe we can change that behavior by providing accurate evidence-based information. Yes. And I think on what sparks my brain when you say that is for many of us, we feel we don't have any option. So it's not directing towards punitive or not in terms of the provider role. It's more, well, it's really not up to me. It's up to that county and that social worker and what they decide. And that's truly how it is. You mm -hmm. get to this, okay, well, I can say what I think and give you an opinion. And I may be able to sway one way or the other, but ultimately it's really up to that county and sometimes state, but it does seem to differ by county mm. what can actually occur with that particular situation. And that's a terrible feeling. If I can say to a social worker, hey, this patient, she's very bright. She is, seems to be really accountable. She is compliant. She wants to do well. She wants to do better and all of these things. And I can say that, and maybe that is influential. I'm not really sure. Sometimes you feel like your hands are tied. And sometimes if you say something, it might make a difference. And that's frustrating as a provider, because if we do see these women and these families in the office, and we see how they interact and behave, you feel like you get a little bit of a glimpse of who they are, and you're developing a trusting relationship. But then to feel so helpless that you really can't ultimately 
help guide what happens with them. And so then it leads to, we don't have enough social workers. We don't have enough supportive services in each county, in each state. Each state is inconsistent. So then you have families that are fleeing from one state to another based on what the policies are in that state and what's enforced. So it's just this messy ball of inconsistent unfairness that seems like it's everywhere. I love that you're doing so much work to try to improve that, but what can we do to actively mitigate these policies that are are more punitive than they are supportive? So, I mean, listening to this podcast is a good first step. Oh, uh, you're sweet. <laughs> educate ourselves. We, Chris, and we talked offline about this, that this is a topic that many people don't even know is a topic to be discussed. So having, staying informed, keeping up to date on what are the policies in your state? What are the repercussions? If I get pregnant and I test positive, what does that mean for me in my state, at my hospital? Be informed. Also pay attention to the legislation that's going on in your state. There are opportunities to advocate at the state level. We can call our legislators and let them know our perspective on, you know, active legislation, advocate where we can. And then I think the the most basic and hopefully lowest threshold thing that we can do is to change the conversation around substance use disorders. So stopping thinking about substance use disorders, that's a choice, right? Addiction is a choice but rather addiction is a chronic medical condition and it requires evidence-based, it can require evidence-based treatment. So reframing the public discourse Mm -hmm. around substance use disorder will hopefully have a downstream effect on how conversations around how we should handle substance use in pregnancy more generally at the policy level. So advocating and realizing your voice can be heard. You contact your legislatures. You also find out what the policies are and you try to figure out how you can be a voice for change Um, and also trying to encourage development of better continuity for community resources and having access to those resources in an affordable way that meets each person where they are, for sure. On this topic, I feel like if I were listening to this, the question I would say might be in my mind. Where do you look up what the risks are versus benefits of use of different medications in pregnancy or in breastfeeding or prior to conceiving? Is there a resource that you all talk about that you would like people to look at? Or is there just not enough readily accessible when they get online to look it up for themselves? What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, when it comes to making decisions about an individual's health, I mean, speaking to your provider to the degree that you have that that safety and that in the relationship and you feel comfortable raising these questions, providers are or can be a great source of information about health. But when you if and when you decide to turn to other sources, you know, my recommendation is to make sure those sources are evidence-based. Okay. And I, I know that that can be challenging because if you look up Google Scholar, which is where you will find, you know, many publications on topics like this that are reputable and evidence-based, they're behind paywalls. So they're not very accessible to the general community. But I would say generally, you know, like be a skeptical consumer of information. 
if you Google something two ways, if you Google cannabis use is safe in pregnancy, you're going to find articles that tell you cannabis use is safe in pregnancy. And if you Google cannabis use isn't safe in pregnancy, you're going to find articles that confirm that search term too. So just being mindful about the source, where you're getting your information, who is reviewing the information can go a long way in changing or correcting misinformation. I love that. It's so true. You can Google one thing a certain way with omitting a word or adding a word, and it completely changes your search. And it can be absolutely inaccurate information. So, and you're right. So a lot of the evidence-based research, especially that's the most recent, the only way you can really look at it is for you to have a subscription that you paid for to look at that research, which really kind of sucks, honestly, because if you have someone who really generally wants to know good information, I wish that that access was a little bit better and more digestible for all education levels, but I can't fix that. And I also understand they all have to be businesses that make money to support the research that they're doing and the publications. And so it's a little bit of a conundrum, but if I have a patient come in and asks a particular question and says, well, I looked it up and this is what it says, or this is a new one I hear a lot on TikTok, I found Mm -hmm. out. And unfortunately, majority of what they're learning on TikTok or with that Google is not right. It's not accurate. And we really want to do better. And if we have this worldwide web and all this information, wouldn't it be nice if what comes to the top is actually true? That would be great. As a researcher, you have to think that that would be perfectly ideal because you've done phenomenal research and your stuff should come to the top. Oh, thanks. Yes, that (laughs) I lose sleep over this, Kristen. Do you? Yeah, I do. Like we, as we in our ivory towers are learning Mm -hmm. really important and impactful information we need to prioritize getting that information back into the community, which is something that me and my lab make efforts to do. But that's not always, certainly not always the approach, but it needs to be. For sure. So as we wind up this podcast, could you share with us what you're working on right now that is going to be your next big step in trying to really make a difference here with the punitive policies surrounding perinatal substance use? Yeah. So at the you know, working from the top down at the highest level, I'm having conversations with policymakers and informing them on what we know about how punitive policies work or don't work and supporting. There are bills. I live in Rhode Island. There are bills being considered right now that are, are reconsidering the way that we approach substance use in pregnancy. So I'm trying to inform policymakers, give them my support can and will testify on this information, which is something that researchers do quite often. At the next level, inform providers about what we know about substance use in pregnancy and how it impacts the developing child and pregnant person. And then conversations like this, talking to the public about topics that have been taboo for Mm -hmm. some time, but need not be. And I love that because what you're sharing today is a topic that I think so many are afraid to talk about because it feels like you're going to get in trouble. And whether you're a provider talking about it or a nurse talking about that or social worker, there's this feeling of, I'm going to do something wrong, say something wrong. It's not okay for me to have an opinion about this. And then imagine how each family feels or a patient feels in that same scenario. It's tough. It's a tough conversation to have, but it's one we all need to be having so we understand it better. And I think we all will have less feeling of judgment. I don't know if that's the right word necessarily, but 
understand where that other person is versus where we are. Because I can't understand someone else's life when I don't live it. I'm not in their shoes. Just They can't understand mine. And being able to have your ears open, your eyes open and accepting of people where they are and then supporting them ultimately. It's like a major tenet of, of psychology of clinical practice, right? Is like open, non-judgmental care. Well, you are amazing, Lauren, and I so appreciate your time today. If you could share where we can find you and I'll put it in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to hearing about your next publication that's coming soon and hoping to have you back on so you can talk about that. So now that we're opening this conversation to all, I'm sure there'll be questions and I would love to have you back on and we can talk about that. I would love to do that, Kristen. Yeah, so you can find me. My name is Lauren Michalizzi. I work at Brown University School of Public Health in the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies. You can find my email right on the website if you Google me. And I welcome these conversations. They're hard. And we're going to say things wrong sometimes, but we need to, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. So I'm happy to have these conversations and I would love to talk more about this with you, Kristen. Well, thank you so much. And of course, everything that we're saying, this is a chat between two people that have a passion for this and it's an imperfect conversation that is certainly not going to be the opinion of everybody else. We're just hoping that as we open this up, people are enlightened and wanting to learn more and trying to advocate for change. So thank you, Lauren, and thank you for sharing your time. And we will talk soon. My pleasure, Kristen. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Why Am I Just Finding This Out? We are facing a crisis in women's health. It is time to be seen and heard. It is time to address medicine and wellness for women holistically. And whatever we do, let's strive to leave a legacy of better. Thank you. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests' qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult your healthcare provider.